You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Sunday as well. So we're going to continue with our series. uh, And I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Praise God. I was so encouraged last week by how far we got, how much we got through. Um, And so tonight, I believe, is tonight part 20? uh, Is tonight part 20? Part 20 of our Genesis series entitled Origins, a study of beginnings. And we are walking through Genesis chapters uh, 1 through 11. And this is probably, as you've heard me argue many times, some of the most contested passages of Scripture. And uh, I have tried to be faithful uh, to the Word of God, faithful to you by uh, letting you know when uh, I believe that there is tolerance that should be allotted within the church for uh, differing uh, interpretations. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it tells us everything we need to know. And so as we walk through this, uh, we make arguments at time one way or the other, and, and, and we talk about things. But the real, the real desire is that when we read Genesis 1 through 11, we take away what God wants us to know. And that is the important and that is the critical thing. And so we thank God for His Word. Hey, it means something or else He wouldn't have given us His Word, right? So we can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. Don't ever let anybody fool you into saying, oh, that doesn't matter. If God took time to record it, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff God did not record for us to read in Scripture that sometimes I wish He would have. But if God took time to record this, then He he has intention in us knowing something. So we're going to continue on tonight, and we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter number 8, chapter number 8, verse number 15, and then we are going to read tonight, hopefully, Lord willing, I'm starting my timer right now, uh, just so I know, that doesn't mean anything, Uh, and we're going to try to get through Genesis chapter 9. Verse 17 tonight. We are in, if you're just jumping in, we are in the part where God is, uh, uh, where the flood is taking place. We, we talked about the flood a little bit last week, and now we're coming out of that. Uh, so we're going to read, uh, Brother Ryan, I want you to read for me. Just read through verse 19. And God spake unto Noah, mm-hmm. saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. Out of the ark. So here we have the conclusion, and this passage is bookmarked with a couple of things. One thing we can identify here is that it's bookmarked with God speaking. God spoke first to Noah, now He's speaking again and telling him to come out. And uh, we're going to go on and get into this a little bit more. One, there, there have been some things, uh, scoffers come up with a, a lot of reasons why 
uh, this story has to be a myth. In fact, how many use Wikipedia? Anybody use Wikipedia online for definitions? Come on, we all use sometimes Wikipedia. Wikipedia would include this uh, as what they would call a flood myth, that it's not possible uh, that this is a myth. And there's a lot of a lot of things, and, and we're not getting into all the things, but a lot of reasons why they don't think this could be possible, that man uh, and all the animals could be wiped out, that they could survive 378 days in the ark, and then that they could come out and all these things. But this is what the Bible is telling us. So I want to start off tonight, if I can, with a video. This is about five minutes long. And uh, I just want to, you to see this is produced by uh, Is Genesis History? And uh, this is a great resource. They started out with a documentary. It's a movie uh, or a documentary that's on, uh, uh, you can purchase it in DVD or you can purchase it uh, um, for uh, instant video on Amazon Prime as well. And I'd highly recommend it. It's got a lot of interesting things. But this is just a little quick clip to talk about how significant the flood really was for us. So let's turn our attention to the screen. Are we good to go? All right. How serious was uh, the Genesis flood. Do you think this is part of what we read in Peter when he's talking about how God formed the earth by water and through water? So it's almost as if he was using the actions of water in the very beginning. Yeah, you know, Peter is definitely pulling back from that in order to get the imagery to remind us that the world was created with water. And that by those waters, as Peter says, the world was then deluged and destroyed. And it's the waters of the world that destroyed the world at the time of the flood yeah. uh, and brought us to a point at the pinnacle of the flood story where it says the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days and only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. The world is brought back to the same state at the end of, at the middle of the flood that it was at the beginning of creation. It's this watery ball of unformedness with chaos going underneath as animals are being destroyed and buried and, and turned into fossils. But that's part of the whole point. God is resetting the world using Noah as a, a fresh representative of the human race mm -hmm. like Adam. He's preserving the animals. He's not gonna remake them. God's not in the business of recreating the world after the flood. So we see the flood narrative pulls a lot from what's going on in creation week, but it does so in an interesting way. Well, are there other clues in that Genesis history that helps us understand exactly how God then destroyed the earth? Yeah, so we've got a, a geological clue in Genesis about what's going on. The fountains of the great deep break, the windows of heaven were open, so we have something going on geologically to rupture the planet, and that seems to trigger this massive and unusual rain uh, onto the earth. So we're not talking about the old nursery rhyme where just all of a sudden water, you know, rain comes down. Right. Something horribly wrong, if you want to look at it from the standpoint of the people who were there, is beginning to happen. That children's song doesn't get us around what the flood really was like. I tell my students that aside from the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels, Genesis 7 is the worst chapter of the Bible. Hmm. Because if you read Genesis 7 for what it is, it's the systematic destruction of every single air-breathing, land-dwelling creature, man, woman, and child on the world. Mm -hmm. It's awful. Yeah. And that should bring us to an understanding of what sin does yeah. to our souls. Mm -hmm. But in that still was mercy and opportunity for grace. Mm -hmm. 
because God never pulls away his grace from, from people. He, he reached out, he became a man mm -hmm. so that he could make that grace complete. And that's what I was overwhelmed with in the Grand Canyon as I was looking at those layers because what struck me was even though those layers are absolutely gorgeous, especially at sunset, yeah. they represented this destruction, the judgment of God and the life that was destroyed. And as Peter says, if you miss that, you'll probably miss that God is going to destroy the, the world again as a result of sin. Yeah, you know, Peter's use of the flood is important because he's got two very short epistles. I mean, they're not long. Mm -hmm. And he uses the flood three times in those two epistles to illustrate important theological truths. And each time he does it, it hinges on Noah and the flood being real events. Mm -hmm. And he actually couples them also not only with Jesus' return, as you said, but also with creation. So what you've got are three events that Peter is linking together, the creation of the world, the destruction of the world, and the return of Jesus Christ for the second, second destruction. And the force of Peter's argument is contingent on the flood being a historical event. It's not one of those things where he's using it as an illustration. It could be mythological or what. No, the reason that we know that judgment will happen in the future is because judgment happened yes. in the past. Well, and not only does uh, the flood help us understand that nature and aspect of God, the holy nature of God as he judges sin, and understanding that God destroyed it then, that he will destroy it again. But it's the record of that flood that also then helps us understand the, the world around us and the facts and the geology, the yeah. paleontology that you are engaged in. Without that reference of the flood, you wouldn't have that eyewitness as to what it is you're really seeing. No, and that's what Peter was helping to, to remind the Jews at the time that he was writing that this is a singular event that was so utterly and completely different from everything else. That's why we know that Jesus' return is going to be an actual event that is completely and utterly different from everything else. History builds upon itself, and God does not forget the history that he has done, and he will use his prophets and his apostles to remind us of those histories. And somebody said amen. amen. So what he's referencing here is 2 Peter chapter number 3. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip there really quick. Second uh, Peter chapter number three. And I don't know that I gave you guys this scripture verse here. And we're going to verses five, six, and seven. And this is really important. I like what he does there in making the connection specifically here with why uh, Peter draws on both creation and he's connecting, linking creation, the judgment of the flood, and then again, uh, the coming uh, of Christ. And so this is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. He said, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So that's an interesting thing. So Peter is absolutely, like he said, uh, making uh, a strong defense that the flood was not just an allegory, 
It was absolute. It was complete. And that was our main point last week, uh, or the, our starting point about the truths of the flood, is God's dis- disposition against sin is absolute. So just because we are living in a period where sin uh, is rampant and it's escalating and it seems like God is doing nothing, Peter says, don't be deceived. There's people that are willingly ignorant of this. He's saying, don't be deceived by this because in fact, he said that this earth now is kept by God but someday it will be brought. Uh, uh, it will be. It will be brought under judgment by fire, and so it's it's with that knowledge of what God did in the past that we understand what the Bible says is coming again. And so uh, one of the things that they highlighted there in is Genesis history is an excellent resource, uh, uh, probably one of my. Uh, Uh, preferred, I guess you could say, resources on some of the subject matter and topics in Genesis 1 through 11 that we've been looking at, uh, because they do such a great job. It's a group of scientists. Uh, A lot of times it seems to be uh, preachers and theologians that are arguing for things based just upon what Scripture says, but these uh, men and women are not only devoted to Christ and His Word uh, being true, but they are uh, also scientists and they understand what's happening in the earth. And they see uh, the earth as testifying to the things that God's word says. And so that's a, it's, it's very incredible. Uh, so it's an excellent resource uh, there. So we're looking at something absolutely catastrophic. And I will always feel like I did an insufficient job of actually uh, explaining. When you read through this passage, chapter 7 and 8, of really understanding what's happening here. Now, a couple of interesting things to note. The first thing uh, uh, is interesting, and, I, I, and I'm not a, <clears throat> a Hebrew scholar by any measures, but linguistically, or, or not linguistically, but uh, um, as far as the literature, the historical literature that's written, they tell me that this Genesis or, or this Genesis flood account, the flood account is divided into six segments, just like creation. Uh, sort of has uh, uh, happens in six days. And it's sort of like that in the writing of this, when the original people would have been hearing both of these stories, they would have seen sort of uh, some parallelism there, uh, I guess you could say, some tie-ins. But there's also something else that's really interesting, and that is twice, uh, specifically with, with the flood account, the flood account begins with God speaking to himself, and it ends also, likewise, with God speaking to itself, himself. Twice, God speaks to himself. So that's interesting. Um, how many knew God spoke to himself? Anybody, anybody know God spoke to himself? I mean, God, does anybody in here speak to yourself? Come on. All the time. Mom and dad used to walk in the room. Who are you talking to, Janelle? Who are you talking to? I don't, no, it's just me. It's just me in here, babe. I'm talking to myself. I do that all the time. So, amen, we're made in the image of God. So I'm guessing God just talks to himself, so that's, that's what it is. So I don't know. But this account, though, God, it's bookmarked, uh, bookended, I guess you could say, by God speaking to himself in the beginning and speaking to himself in the end. We see that in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6. Uh, real quickly, just to give you the reference there. Uh, 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 <clears throat> 
it says, uh, chapter 6, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And so the text is expressing. Uh, now, the Bible, the Bible speaks to us in human language. Because it can't, <laughs> that's the whole point of the Bible. It's God uh, uh, transcendent, uh, God unknowable, becoming knowable. So he speaks to us in human languages. So he uses those 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 uh, terminologies, I guess you could say. So it grieved him at his heart. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a heart like you and I have a heart that's functioning to pump blood to keep him alive. But it grieved him at his heart, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. And then at the end, it literally says this in uh, chapter 8, verse 20. So I'll have you pick up Brother Ryan here. We read verse 15 through 19. So let's go to chapter 8, verse 20 here. And I want you to read here this first verse. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. Yes. And took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Okay, read the next verse. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. Yes. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. All right, so we can pause right there. So you saw that. And the Lord said in his heart, or, or, or literally they would interpret that, he said it to himself. He's, he's emphatic. He's stating something here. So that's just an interesting thing. Uh, there's all kinds of little nuances and stuff in the story here. But now we've come out of, out of uh, the flood. And we, we have to highlight some things. We are now entering in the text, in the storyline, in the chronology, we are now entering into a new world. This is a new world. It's not the same world. Things are getting ready to change. They're, they're changed already. And everything has been changed. Nothing looks the same. Nothing, uh, uh, we, we can't even imagine what's happening here. Uh, some things that we ought to consider. The first thing that we must consider is the devastation aspect. There's a lot of things under the devastation aspect of the new world that we have to think about. During the flood, the Bible tells us that the greatest earthquakes in the history of the earth happened. All of the fountains of the deep opened up. These are massive. These are incredible earthquakes like never before. The greatest storms that ever happened in the history of the world are happening at this time like no other. There is potential uh, uh, continent drift and collision. And I referenced, you know, the irony that every mountain range in the world mirrors the, uh, 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 the uh, lines of the nearest coast in the ocean, every mountain range. It, it signifies geologists think there had to be some kind of collision there. There had to be some kind of separation and things would rise up. I don't know if I mentioned that last week or not, but that, that's just an interesting thing. So these are massive, massive changes like no other. You can't even comprehend what's happening here. Uh, when the fountains of the deep open up and uh, uh, the canopy of water that it seems to imply falls down, the water's going to go so high in the earth. This is probably now when uh, 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 after the re in the recovery period that we enter in after the flood, when the waters uh, re recede and there's dry land, now there's probably the ice age comes on. There's massive, uh, massive ice age. And from this point, from this point on to the future, the earth has continually been cooling, and there's been massive things that have taken place. This is probably the time 
uh, uh, most likely when uh, massive things like the Grand Canyon uh, are created, all of this stuff where, where lakes, as the continent settles, there's, there's merely in the mass, in the whole mass of the earth, the, the crust or the shell uh, besides the inner core, and you can, you can look it up, Google how hot it is, it's incredible. The, the crust of the earth is only about 10 miles thick. And the top mile uh, of the earth's uh, uh, crust uh, is, looks like a sedimentary, uh, sedent, uh, thank you, sedimentary, thank you, Sister Nicole. I heard you most. Um, no, don't apologize. You were helping me out. I needed the help. Thank you. Please feel free to help me out. Um, but that top mile could have been, uh, seem, seems like there's a settlement, which, which also, how did that happen unless there was water? Well, Peter even says that the world was made by water and, and it stood in and out of the water. And then by that water, uh, the process is that God destroyed that earth. Peter testifies that that world perished. It's no more. It doesn't look the same. And, and he says, and the heavens and the earth, which are now. And so we know, know the terminology heavens, uh, not just implying, you know, that God recreated the stars and all of that stuff, but the heavens being that atmosphere. And the Bible terminology of heavens, um, especially in the New Testament, you, you hear of a time where I was caught up into the third heaven. That's a heaven beyond what we could see. And so they would, they would talk about this atmosphere above the earth as, as sort of being that first heaven uh, that we see where the clouds and everything move and so where the birds fly. So the heavens and the earth, which are now, Peter says, are new. So the old world, the heavens and the earth look differently. So all of these things take place and happen. And uh, it, it didn't have to take uh, billions of years for it all to come about. And these incredible uh, uh, geologists and, and, and everything else have seen and looked at how this could not have taken that long. In fact, if you take time to watch the Is Genesis uh, History documentary, he starts out, I don't want to give it away, but he starts out in a place of the world that has canyons, plants, all this kind of stuff, flowing little creeks and all this stuff. And he starts out, and then he makes the audacious statement. He said, all of this, he said, how old is this? He's picking up rocks and said, these, these rocks, maybe they're 2 million years old. Maybe it took billions of years to create all this. He said, but what if I told you all of this that you are seeing, he said, is actually younger than I am. And everybody's like, what? Wow. No, no, you got to watch you got to watch the documentary because that's what science doesn't tell you. We have massive landscapes and stuff that have changed overnight and that have taken place in just a matter of a few years, but they suppress all that stuff. Even within some of you in here, within your lifetime, I talked about that canyon in Georgia where you go in and all of that's happened. It literally looks like Bryce Canyon, one of my most favorite places to go and hike. When you're hiking through Bryce Canyon, you feel like you are in another world. There's no place like it in earth. It literally seems fake. It seems like a movie set that somebody just created. It's otherworldly. And yet there's another canyon like that in Georgia, but it's, it, it did not exist until about 80 some years ago from farmers' bad irrigation habits and the water washed it out and created it. And so in one place we go to the world and we say, oh, this was millions and millions and millions of years old. And in another place we go and we say, oh yeah, that actually only took about 25 years 
for this all to happen. And so this time of the flood is absolutely incredible. The miracle aspect, we're not, we're not saying that everything can be explained in the flood logically. There was the miraculous aspect. We're not denying the supernatural. In fact, we are insisting on divine intervention. Intervention. I don't know how everything, how you need, uh, uh, how, how did they breathe 378 days while they were in the ark and not die of asphyxiation? That's a good question. How after 378 days did all the animals, as the Bible say, walk out after limited mobility and movement within that ark? I don't know. We, it doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but tells us everything we need to know when we see this. And so now they come out. Um, there's all kinds of things, uh, uh, and, and the Bible is telling us this is a new world. And now it testifies of the grace of God because of the eight people that are saved. God did not wipe out. He did not, he did not make the earth go to non-existent and start over. But in His mercy and His grace, He takes Noah, who found favor in the sight of God, and He says, okay, with you, I'm going to continue my purpose and my intent and my plan. With you, Noah, I'm going to make a covenant. And an interesting thing to note, we're not going to spend time on this, but Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He did not mean that it's going to flood again, because God already said it's not going to flood again. But that's interesting. You can go to Matthew 24, and you can look at that on your own. Matthew 24, 37 and 38. Luke 17, 26 through 27. The point is, is that when God shuts the door, when God says it's time, it's time. And just because God hasn't come for 900 years doesn't mean that you've got a whole another nine uh, or 99 years, sorry, 99 more years to party and live however you want. You've got to make, you've got to get right now. And Peter preached, and when God says it's done, it's done. And it was over. It didn't matter if they came and knocked on the ark. It didn't matter if they were swimming uh, and they saw the ark. It's done. It's over. When God comes back, he's coming back like a thief in the night. It's going to be no man knows the day or the hour. And, 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 and so when he comes back, you've got to be ready. But here's the good news. If you are ready, if you are obedient to God, you will be saved. If you're ready, you're not afraid of when he's coming back. Amen. There's no terror in living for God. The terror comes when you step outside of the covering that God has in your life. That's the terror. And so you want to live for the Lord. All right, so we go on. In, in chapter 8, verse 16, uh, I know we, we talked about this. No, God spoke. Uh, we're talking about in this, in this time period, now they are leaving the ark. So they, they built the ark, then they entered the ark, and now we're in the, we're in the next transition, and the next transition is they are leaving the ark. And so there's some things that happen, four things that happen while they are leaving the ark. And I'm going to give these to you real quick, and uh, we're going to finish on time. And somebody say, in Jesus' name. Somebody say, I believe in miracles. God speaks. That's the first thing that happens when they are leaving the ark. God speaks. And God spake unto Noah, saying, go. Go forth out of the ark. And he gives them all of those things. God speaks. And what does Noah do? Noah obeys. He goes forth. And in his going forth, Noah is stepping out into a new world that's not yet recovered. Imagine this. The new world is not yet recovered. I mean, it's just been wiped out by flood. The, the, the vegetation, the sediment, all that stuff looks different. 
If this is the onset of the Ice Age, perhaps when Noah steps out of the ark, it could have been the first time, because the Bible says that the ark rested in the mountains. Uh, it could have been the first time that he saw snow-capped mountains, that humanity saw snow-capped mountains. Think about this world. You're, you want to talk about being on another planet. Like this is an incredible step of faith and he's going out and, and they are embracing the covenant that God gave them as a promise in chapter 6 and verse 18. The first thing that God does is God speaks. The second thing that takes place we see is Noah's sacrifice. In 8.20, we read the text. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings unto the Lord. Now, this... Uh, uh, there was clean. There was a, a difference between clean and unclean, even back in Noah's day. Enough that he knows, or else God has told him at this point. Now, just because we record when God is speaking to Noah, doesn't mean that God didn't speak to him any other time, because it seems like God spoke to him the first time. There's a hundred years, and then God speaks another time. That's a long time to wait. Anybody ever been in one of those seasons? <laughs> but the Bible doesn't tell us if God did speak to him. But here, Noah is building an altar, and he takes, the Bible says, of the clean beast. So, so here's the mention of that, and offered a burnt offering. It is an offering unto the Lord. Now, something's already been established because the first mention, we're not told how it's passed on down uh, from, from the beginning, from Abel all the way down. But the first mention of sacrifice is a few chapters before. Cain and Abel, first mention of sacrifice. And then we see humanity divide, those that are going their own way, Cain's lineage, and then those after Seth's lineage that uh, when men begin to call upon the name of the Lord and follow after God. And so something happens to where Noah now knows about the sacrifice. That was demanded. So we have to make a little bit of assumption there, even though the Bible doesn't tell us. But this is actually the second mention of sacrifice chronologically in Scripture, the second mention of sacrifice, but it is the first mention of sacrifice in this new world state. And so the very first thing that takes place is there is a sacrifice. We see a sacrifice, uh, uh, we see a sacrifice, the first sacrifice uh, that is actually mentioned, and I should back up, this is, second, this is the third mention of sacrifice, the second mention of sacrifice by man, but the first mention of sacrifice was by God as they were leaving the garden, and God took beasts, and he took the skins, and he clothed them. So that would have been the first killing, and then the first sacrifice mentioned by man was that of Abel, the second sacrifice mentioned by man is now here, Noah, in this new world state, and he's offering it as a burnt offering. He's giving this as an offering unto the Lord. And the Lord, in verse 21, this is interesting because this informs us about God. And this part, I referenced it last night if you were here in prayer meeting, but this part causes Jehovah, God of the Hebrews, to stand alone and apart from all other gods of the pagan people in this day and time. It says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, and then God gives a response. But it says, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. So it's interesting that God is, is using this uh, uh, the, the sense 
of humanity smelling to liken his pleasure of the sacrifice. And the reason why this makes God stand alone and separate is because the ancient uh, uh, Mesopotamian thank you, traditions had their gods required the sacrifice of their people and, and according to their traditions, their gods would eat the sacrifice, meaning they depended upon the sacrifice of the people. So the other people, traditions, humanities around the world prior, they demanded sacrifice so that they could be sustained. But here, God does not demand anything. God is not dependent on anything. God does not need us, but God is pleased. And, and the way it illustrates this which I just think is incredible, the Lord smelled a sweet savor. Remember, the Bible speaks to us in human terms. Has anybody had a sweet smell? And that smell has a powerful impact on you. That terminology is contrasted with the idea of living 378 days in an ark with all the beasts of the earth. And now there's a sweet smell. Perhaps this is the first sweet smell in the new world. I don't know. But God is pleased from this. And this informs us about God separate. This would inform God's people about Him. And God responds now to the sacrifice. And He says, He says, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. So now this is an interesting thing because before God cursed the ground, I will not again curse the ground anymore more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I smite any more every living thing as I have done. Now, he does not say that man's heart has changed. He acknowledges we're starting over, but the problem isn't solved. But he's giving a response because of the offering that Noah gave. I'm going to tell you, Sometimes the problem isn't solved in your life. But I'm going to tell you, God loves your offerings. He loves what you give to Him. And His response, He says, I'm not going to do anything anymore, neither will I smite anymore every living thing as I have done. And then He gives an interesting response. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So while the earth remains, what's that mean? That means until the day that Peter talked about that's coming with a judgment of fire, seasons will not cease. So there will always be day and night. There will always be uh, winter and summer. And there will always be seed time and harvest. And so the earth is going to be sustained. And so there will no longer be a change. We are living in what Noah would come to know over the next few hundred years as the earth would sort of recover and things would settle and, 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 and lakes would overflow and canyons would be made and icebergs would begin to melt and all of that stuff would begin to happen. We are living in that time period right now today and the promise of Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22 applies to you and me today. 
And somebody said amen. 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 And so now we're going to go on to the third thing, and that's the third thing that happens in this transitionary phase of leaving the ark, and that is that God gives a covenant with Noah. I want to read here. Let's go to chapter 9, verse 1. And Brother Ryan, I want you to read for us here the first seven verses. His mic's dead. I'll read for him. Amen. My voice might die, but I'm going to read for him. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. And into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Somebody said, praise God. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every Man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply thereof. And God spake unto Noah in verse 8, and to his sons with him. So not just to Noah, but to all humanity. And behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. So here we see the third thing, and that is God's covenant. God's covenant. God is giving a covenant. And this covenant is not just given to Noah personally, but it is given to all humanity. It is a covenant to him, his sons, all that are with you and with your seed after you. For all of us, even us today, we are still under this covenant. And with this covenant, it was predicated by commands that God gave. So God now in this new world, he gives commands. We do not see this before. Before he creates Adam and Eve in their innocence, they're in the garden. And then he sends them out of the garden, they're banished, and we know the direction that that takes. But now in this new world, when they step foot on this new ground, this new soil, God gives them commands. And we're going to look at those because he gives them four commands specifically. Let's go through these. The first command that he gives to them, and you can put these slides up there. The first command is to multiply and fill the earth. You must multiply and fill the earth. God uh, said the, the, the whole earth, you've got to go spread out, multiply, and I want you to fill the earth. You are made in the image of God, and I want you to spread out. So this is a command. That command is still applicable to us today. All of these are. The second command that he gives to us is actually uh, 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 not just a command, but sort of a statement of change. This is changing. The first command was a command that he gave to them when they left the garden. But the second command now tells us that dominion, which was given to man when he was created, 
take dominion. Dominion now takes the form of fear. And so there's a change in the world. God speaks this into existence. Every beast, every creature, every fish. Have you ever tried to catch a fish with your hands? It's really hard because they run from you. And the reason why is because the dominion that you will have over the earth now is going to take the form of fear. Animals will no longer come up to you. They're not going to be nice to you. They're going to be afraid of you. There's going to be a natural fear between man and animals. Now, obviously, we know that there's certain things that can be domesticated and can be trained Amen. But overall, as a general rule, we understand that when animals are left of their own, they have to learn those trusts. There is not just a natural trust there. There is a fear. And so dominion takes the form of fear. The third command that God gives to us is that He is now providing for man to kill and eat animals. He is now providing for man to kill and to eat meat. This is what he says. One of the reasons perhaps why he gives this command is because in the new world state, in the changed state, now uh, uh, there, the, the vegetation uh, would have been altered. It may not have been sufficient. There's a change in the whole dynamics of things. There's going to be a change in the atmosphere and everything. Yes, there was vegetation before they got out of the ark, because when he sends out the dove, the dove comes back with a leaf in its mouth. So we know that there would have been some, but now God provides for man to eat meat. Somebody say, praise God. Praise God. Amen. All those of you that like barbecue, thank the Lord for this. However, however, God does not just say this without specifications and restrictions. He says... Uh, he says, every moving thing that, that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb that I have given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof. What's the life? The life is the blood. When blood is in there, that's, that's, that's life. He says, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And so, not only does uh, uh, God provide, but now He says you can't eat it with life in it. The life has to be taken out of that. And in this demand, God is specifically uh, demanding the way humans would treat it, and He's preventing the suffering. God later on would, even in the Mosaic uh, 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 in Moses' giving of the law, God's going to explain that it is not right for humans to make animals suffer. This is not to be something that is suffering. Yes, you can kill them and eat them, but this is not about you making them suffer. And the sign of life, God establishes, what's the sign of life? The blood. The blood. So do not eat the blood. So whenever they would kill uh, an animal, it was swift, it was quick, and they would drain the blood out, and they would cook the meat. They would cook out the blood. That was the takeaway that they understood by this. And he goes on, and now we're going to the fourth command. Not only is the blood 
uh, a sign of life. But the fourth command is that murder is forbidden and punished with death. Look at what he says. And surely your blood, speaking of the life, he's now talking about you individually. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. Now here's a unique distinction. The uh, animal rights activists don't like this. The the, uh, evolutionists don't like this because they think they want to lower humanity down on the same plane uh, as all, all animals, but there's a distinction that God makes, and this would offend, offend those people. He says, your blood will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. So man is able to kill and eat meat, but he is limited and prevented from causing any beast to suffer. He is limited against abuse against an animal. But an animal cannot kill a man without suffering death. An animal cannot kill and eat a man. And if it does, God says at this point, that animal must die. And if a man kills another man, a person kills another person, that is paid in kind, life for life. And he says, he doesn't say, uh, you will require it. God says, I will require it. This is hard stuff. This is bold. This is bold language. This is clear language. It's a new society, right? A new, a new start, a reset. And he tells us, this is the only time he gives us an explanation for why this is. Look at what he says. He said, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. And so God instituted here the, uh, the uh, avenger, of of blood, if you will, later on spelled out in the law that Moses would give. He said, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his uh, his blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God made he man. In the image of God. So what God is talking about here is man is created uniquely. In the image of God, there is a sanctity in human life. We talked about it in the very beginning uh, uh, when God talks about the creation of man. And now it is reiterated here in the reset, if you will, of the human population. And God emphatically takes time to talk about it. Man is created in the image of God. Whenever you kill another person, that God takes that as a direct assault and a direct affront. And so God here in in the Old Testament at the new start of the new world, God required punishment by death. And this is hard language. I know some people don't like that. Now, before you jump to conclusions, think, well, God's just a mean, crude, uh, uh, horrible person. I I know there are a lot of arguments today against capital punishment, and probably the most persuasive arguments is in episodes and incidents where innocent people have paid the price uh, uh, for not doing a crime. The law of Moses required certain, uh, 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 let's say, uh, 
Things had to come together. They had to be conclusive evidence that somebody was guilty of the crime before that person would be, uh, uh, whose life would be taken. That was, that was made law in the Old Testament under Moses. And God felt so strongly that the innocent should not suffer that God even said if there's only one witness then the guilty gets to go free. Because you can't put faith in one witness because you are not God. And so God balances what He's saying here with the absolute thing that unless it's conclusive, uh, God says, I'd rather let a murderer go free in your midst than for an innocent person to pay the price of that. And so there were times where uh, the guilty were, uh, were in a place of going free. And if in the Old Testament, if you got away with murder, you better be very careful that you never did anything wrong again. <laughs> but God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, so don't you worry about it because I'll settle the score. He said, if you don't know it, I'll take care of it. I'll settle the score. And how many know God has a way of doing that? I mean, if he can open up the earth... And swallow a whole bunch of people. He can take care of you and me when we lie and we think we're going around, look at me, I'm getting away with sin. But this, this is what God put in there. He said you are not allowed to murder. Human life is uniquely precious. And this was established here after the ark as a bedrock, a cornerstone of society. We are not to take any life, including our own. So there is an ethical argument today, a modern ethical argument that you don't have a right to tell me what to do. I can take my own life. And an agnostic, atheistic type approach to the world, secularism today, is totally fine with that. We're fine with euthanasia. We're fine with assisted suicide. Those things are a direct affront to God. And they're in denial of what God has established in here. When, uh, 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 this is why animals could kill man, but man could not kill animals. God institutes the death penalty for premeditated murder as a cornerstone of society among all mankind. Life for life denotes the ultimate sin against humanity. There's nothing great you can do to sin against your brother than to kill them. This passage emphasizes capital punishment not because human life is cheap, but because human life is so valuable. The question is, when is their life? God says here in the Old Testament, He says that the life is whenever there is blood whenever there is blood. And so I know people have asked the question, well, when was this, when was this suspended? Uh, when and if is the argument and the debate broadly in the New Testament some. When and if is the death penalty for premeditated murder suspended in the New Testament? Um, I'm not here to talk about that tonight, but short, in, in the quick and the short answer, it, you, you don't find that suspended. Uh, Paul even emphasizes that governments, when they carry these things out, Paul says 
they, they uh, wield not the sword in vain. He said, but even governments, talking about a Roman carnal government, when they carry out these things, they are acting as, um, uh, as, as God's agents even in that. So this is how strong God feels about life. From the moment that blood exists in the body to the moment of death, that is the period of life. And so uh, the argument, uh, you know, that a baby is not uh, uh, a viable option until after it's out of the womb is totally thrown out because God makes the case emphatically here that it has to do with blood in the body. And I know a lot of people don't like that, but th that's why I said, remember I said Genesis 1 through 11 is the most contested passages in Scripture. And we can see all of this stuff playing out just right here. Okay, it just dinged at me, and that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> all right, so the final thing that we would cover will go on, and that's this. Can I, can, can I have a few more minutes? I got two more minutes. Yeah. All right, thank you. So let's read verse number 8. And God spake unto Noah, yes, and to his sons with him, saying, Yes, and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Read faster. And with your seed after you. Yes. And with every living creature that yes. is with you, of the fowl of the cattle, yes. of every beast of the earth with go you, on. from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Mm -hmm. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. I'm giving you a covenant. And no, neither shall all flesh be, flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. Read on in verse 12. And God said, this is the token of the covenant. Which okay, I so let's stop. First off, the fourth thing, the fourth thing God, the fourth command was God gave a promise or the fourth thing, not the fourth command, but the fourth thing that happens in leaving the ark is God gives a promise. And the promise he says, never again shall all flesh be destroyed with a flood. He didn't say never again shall any flesh be destroyed with a flood. He said never again shall all flesh be destroyed with a flood. And then after that, he says, I'm going to go one better. He said, I am going... Now, can, imagine the trauma. Imagine the tragedy. After you've been through the flood, you saw the clouds, you felt the earthquake. Imagine the next time that you see a storm. The PTSD that's going to come. God says, I'm going to help you out. Read on. Verse 12. And God said, this is a token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature. And every living creature, that's all right. That is with you for perpetual Perpetual, yes. I do set my bow in the cloud. Yes. And it shall be take, shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. All right. And, and it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth. There you go. Bow shall be seen in the cloud. You'll never see a rainbow without a storm cloud. You'll never see a rainbow without a storm cloud. Now, we want to live life with rainbows and no clouds, right? But you never see a rainbow, a reminder of his promise without a storm cloud. So some of you are wondering, why is God taking me through the storm? Because he's trying to remind you of his promises, which we can so easily... I didn't come to preach. Read on. I got to go on. Verse 15. And I will remember my covenant 
which is between me and you and every living creature of yes, all flesh. Yes, yes. Remember, God does not forget like you and I forget. So that terminology, remember, doesn't mean God's going to forget. But it's saying that he's reemphasizing. I'm, I, my covenant with you. Go on. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Right. And the bow shall be in the cloud. Yes. And I will look upon it. Praise God. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Yes. Verse 17. And God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. This is the token of the covenant I've established with me and all flesh that is upon the earth. You'll never see a rainbow without a cloud. And right now in our society, we have an entire movement of people that are rebelling against God, just like they did before the flood. And they have taken the rainbow to use that as their sign. And what they don't realize is there's a storm coming. God brings a rainbow, amen, he brings a storm to show a rainbow to us that God's got a promise that he's going to keep us and he's going to save us. But when you try to take the rainbow without the storm, God says, I'll bring a storm to remind you that I keep my word. We better make sure we're living on the right side of the rainbow. Would you stand together with me tonight? I believe there's light at the end of the tunnel and I believe that in two or three minutes,